a, a recent kind of phenomenon, at least it's recent to me, is that um, all these generational titles, has that kind of ever, ever struck anyone, you know, how we have like millennials and Gen Zs and Gen X and boomers, and I, I don't know where all that came from. Um, I, I suspect they had to kind of pull back on what they used to call my generation. Um, when I was growing up, we had a label, but it wasn't as nondescript as all those things. My generation was called the microwave generation. And that was not because we invented the microwave. Um, it wasn't because we had a fascination with heating things up. Um, it was because, in the humble opinion of the adults at that time, our, my generation was like that little girl Veruca, uh, Veruca Salt from Willy Wonka, y'all remember her? Um, who famously turned to her dad and said, Daddy, I want a golden goose and I want it now. The adults at that time believed that my generation was a very selfish, demanding, impatient bunch of kids, um, which I find fascinating looking back because I think there was a word in the English language that was available to adults at that time. The word was no, um, instead of indulging every whim. And, and having talked to folks like my parents and others, um, we were just as microwave as our parents were. Um, you know, it's, that's a, that's a, a trait um, that, that pretty much I think we all share. Um, I heard someone jokingly say, you know, the millennials are really entitled. Well, probably not any more entitled than the rest of America. Um, we, we're very privileged people. I mean, God has been so good to us. And, you know, we have so many conveniences and wonderful things. But we are a people, I think, in general, that, you know, we want what we want when we want it which is either right now or 10 minutes ago. You know, I mean, that, that's kind of who we are. And typically we do okay until we encounter delay or an obstacle. Um, I'll never forget the time I was at Wendy's, um, at the, the restaurant, and I, I put my order in and, you know, I, I don't know if they still do this, I haven't been to Wendy's in forever, but they put your tray down, they pop your ticket on it, and you just kind of wait for the food to come. So I did that, and the guy, one guy in front of me, you know, he's kind of doing this, and you know, him and Han, and finally he leans forward and he says to the girl at the register, excuse me, miss, do you know how long I've been waiting for my fries? And she reaches down and picks up his ticket off the tray and goes, yes, sir, about three minutes. <laughs> That's kind of a good picture of our society in general. And I bring that up today because we've got to be careful of that when it comes to spiritual life. Um, we got to be careful about bringing our cultural expectations and putting them on God, um, especially our sense of timing. You know, our sense of timing when it comes to God's work in our lives. Because if we do that, we're going to come away frustrated and very disappointed because we've got God on the U.S. clock um, instead of, of his heavenly sense of timing. Because God's timing in our lives is rarely our timing. Has anyone noticed that? Your sense of time, yeah, amen. Our sense of time is rarely God's sense. But here is the thing about timing in Scripture. When God does something, it's always perfect. It's always a perfect work every single time. In every circumstance and every situation, how long it takes God to do something 
it's always exactly what is needed and always accomplishes exactly what God wants. Timing. God's timing is a perfect part of a master plan. I think it's important to bring that up today because we are getting ready to enter the wilderness with the Israelites. And as we pointed out last week, I don't know if you did the math, you know, you opened up the, to your map and you looked at the distance. By every calculation, that could have been a two to three week march. It really could have been. Um, but instead, we are left with 40 years. Man, for us as Americans, it's just hard to wrap your mind around that. And especially when you add in that one word, the word of what is happening. What is God doing through this journey? He is delivering them, right? Now, now there's a word that is supercharged with urgency for us. You say the word delivery to any American and man, the clock is running. You know, Amazon with that package, Domino's with that pizza, get it here. Or if we think even classically, you know, like you can think about uh, uh, deliver, uh, getting delivered from evil. Um, how many of you have seen Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers? A lot of us, right? The wizard Gandalf uh, does that demonic exorcism on King Theoden. Uh, on screen, that takes about 90 seconds, right? But here we are again with 40 years. What do we do with that? Well, we'll find out in a minute. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we love you. And, and it is, in, in some ways, Lord, it is so much fun to hold ourselves up against Scripture um, and to realize just in a very humble moment that we don't have it all figured out. Um, Lord, our ways and your ways differ, and your ways are right. And so, God, we just thank you. I thank you for your heavenly plan. I thank you for the time involved in this beautiful work you're doing in our lives. And I thank you for, for a great example of the Israelites. Um, and we just ask you to bless in the same way we, we pray when we take a long drive. Lord, we ask you to bless this journey that our congregation is taking now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to spend a lot of time in the Exodus coming up. Um, and just so you know, the Exodus mostly is contained within the book of uh, Exodus, but it actually begins, it formally begins before that, um, around the end of Genesis. Uh, in Genesis 37, we are introduced to a young man whose name is Joseph, and uh, it all kicks off when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Now, admittedly, if you, if you take time to look at Joseph in uh, Genesis 37, uh, he's got some character issues. Um, he, he is probably not a brother we would have enjoyed at that stage of his life, but still to be sold in slavery, that's a little bit extreme. It's incredibly extreme, but he gets sold in, into slavery and he ends up in Egypt. And it is just the worst of scenarios for Joseph. It's a story that goes from bad to worse for, for quite a while. But here's the thing about Joseph, because God shows up in his life, because God is with him, because God moves powerfully again and again in Joseph's story, he rises, and this is incredible, from a prisoner who is absolutely lost in the system. Okay, that's his lowest point. He rises from that to the most important man in all of Egypt underneath Pharaoh. I, 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 you talk rag to, rags to riches, this is it. Genesis 41. 
uh, 41 through 44. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, make way. Thus, Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh said to, uh, said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. It's amazing. I mean, only God could pull something like that off. But this is where the Exodus starts because Joseph then invites his family to come live with him. And as you know, as you follow the story, this becomes a new home for the Israelites. And y'all, for a while, actually a very long while, everything is hunky-dory for the Israelites. It just is. In fact, by Exodus 1-7, we read this, that the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful they multiplied greatly and increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land of Egypt was filled with them. And that, that is a statement of success. That's God's favor. That's God's blessing. Man, if things panned out quite well for, for the nation of Israel. Until we get to the very next verse, verses 8 through 10. But then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. And then we want to stop and make sure we get where we are historically because what follows for the Jews can only be compared to the Holocaust. I don't know if, 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 if you understand that, but, you know, because we, we have short commentary here but as you read in Jewish literature, as you really study, look behind the scenes, what Pharaoh does. I mean, the roots of the Holocaust have, are, are in this moment in history. Pharaoh comes to power and his, his aim is to wipe the Jews from the face of the earth, to exterminate them as a people. It says it very clearly in Scripture. And so he puts them into forced labor and at times even has them build with bricks without straw, bricks that will collapse. His only goal is to work them to death. And when that doesn't turn out the way he wants, he has every Jewish baby boy thrown into the Nile River. It's a horrible, horrible turning. Terrible moment. And yet, ironically, we get a glimmer of hope right in the midst of this as one Jewish mother with a baby boy um, to keep him safe, puts him in a basket in the Nile River. She does it out of sheer desperation to give him some chance. And who should come along and find him but Pharaoh's daughter? And if you, you, you think about, you know, the, the, the feeling in that family, uh, that Egyptian ruling family toward the Jews, think about what Pharaoh's daughter ought to do. I mean, we would half expect her to flip the basket over, right? Or, or run him off to the authorities so he can be thrown formally with the rest of them. But when she sees this baby, her heart melts. She, she bonds with him and she goes to his mother and, and, and asks his mother to be his wet nurse. And so his mother gets to bring him up and this little baby boy, Moses, 
ends up becoming part of Pharaoh's family. (laughs) The adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, and this baby boy Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household. And in time, it's Joseph-esque, right? Joseph-esque. He becomes the deliverer of Israel. He will lead the people on this journey that we're taking. It's just amazing. And so Moses grows up, and sometime later, God calls him into service. In that famous chapter in Exodus 3, with the burning bush, God shows up and calls him. And, And it's an amazing moment for a lot of reasons. But I just want to point out one very interesting thing here that we could miss, but we're not going to today. But it's the fact that Moses and God, or or to Moses and the bush in the moment, that they engage in a conversation for quite a while. It's quite a bit of dialogue. And and Moses has no idea who he's talking to. He's going back and forth. We get to verse 13, and Moses, after talking to him for a while, has to ask God who he is. He says, suppose I go to the Israelites and, and... I say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What do I tell them? This is where Moses is at this point in his life, and we'll come back to this in just a little bit. Well, a short while later, the showdown begins between Pharaoh and uh, God, and God sends 10 plagues against Pharaoh and against Egypt. And, And one thing I want us to note is with the first five, there's an interesting dynamic here. Pharaoh has a very clear opportunity through the first five plagues to let the people go. Um, Pharaoh has a very honest moment. He can do this. But at the end of each one of the first five plagues, we, we read this or something very close to it. But Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. And there's a shift at plague number six. We read this in Exodus 9, 12. We read that now God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And some people say, hey, that's a really unfair thing for God to do. But what God is doing at this point is, look, after all of this, after after, after saying no all these times, I'm now going to turn you over to the hardness of your heart. And that brings us now, we'll fast forward to the final plague of Egypt, the Passover, which, by the way, is represented by our communion table here. It all points to Jesus And the Passover is where God instructed, and many of us know this, God instructed the Jews to take a lamb without defect and to offer it as a sacrifice and to take its blood and to paint their door frames and every house that, that, you know, was, was painted with the blood of the lamb, an angel of death was coming and it would pass by that house. But any house that didn't have it, their firstborn son would die. Now, this, uh, this is another one of those times in the Old Testament where sometimes people will say, gosh, this is unfair of, of God to do this, you know, forgetting all the evil that Pharaoh has done. Um, but how could God do this? How, how could God allow the death of the Egyptian children? And yet the storyline of Exodus 11 tells us a different story, actually, because Moses goes to Pharaoh and he tells them what is about to happen. And verse 9 says this, Pharaoh refused to listen to Moses. He wouldn't listen to him. Even after he experienced the undeniable power of God for five plagues, 
After everything that has happened, Pharaoh refuses to listen. And so the storyline of that final plague is, look, the death of those Egyptian children, as well as the Hebrew children, it rested solely on Pharaoh's head. Well, finally, uh, after plague number, uh, number 10, Pharaoh finally releases the Israelites. Um, actually, it's more of a kicking them out of Egypt. He lets them go, and uh, the, the Jews enter the wilderness. The journey begins, and what we see is that God is with them. God is with them from day one. Here they are in the desert where there is nothing, right? The wilderness, but there is God. Cloud by day, fire by night, and then Pharaoh quickly changes his mind as he's been doing the whole time, sends the army after the children of Israel, and God wipes the Egyptians out in the Red Sea, the Egyptian army. Woo, that's a lot, right? I mean, that's quite a story, okay? You've got a whole lot of action, and I encourage you to go back and just read through those other chapters. But today we wanted to just deal with Egypt and what they left, but it's an incredible story. Um, whole lot of drama, and we are not even close to done with what happens next. So the question today is just, just this, a couple questions. One is, wow, is all of that worth it? I mean, my goodness, boy, all, all that stuff, is there something more going on here? I mean, even in the beginning, what is the point of all of that? And the answer is, yes, there's something big going on. Yes, it points to the whole journey itself, and, and I'll reveal it to you, okay? We're going to go back to Moses for just a minute in Exodus 3. Okay, remember what we said. When Moses meets God, he doesn't even know who he's talking to, okay? Um, he has to ask God his name. That's how clueless Moses is. But let's for fast forward now to Exodus 15, right after the Red Sea, and listen to what Moses has to say about this God or to this God that he didn't even know his name earlier. After the plagues, after the jailbreak, after the provision, after the Red Sea. Moses goes from, who should I tell the people is sending me to, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The Lord is my strength, my defense. The Lord has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. He is my father's God, and I will exalt him. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? In your unfailing love, you lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them into your holy dwelling. The Lord reigns forever and ever. I mean, yeah, do you feel that? I mean, he goes from, huh, what, Bush, what's your name, who are you, to you are my God. And it's so personal and intimate and deep and rich. I mean, you can feel the joy and the wonder coming off of Moses as he, as he does this. It's just incredible. And it really is showing us why this journey is necessary. The journey to the promised land, Moses is kind of that forerunner. He is showing us that this journey is as important as the promised land itself. It is because God is not just delivering them from something. He's delivering them to something. And it's very 
important here. It, it's not just about being set free from death and slavery and evil. It's about being set free in a new land and as a new people. And that's what's starting to happen in Moses' life here. As he discovers God, he's becoming a new person. That confession tells us, whoa, this guy right here in 15 is not this guy in, in verse 3. And so that's what God is doing here. That's what so much of this journey is about. God taking them into the wilderness to build, to build a relationship so that they'll come to know him, love him, trust him, experience him, follow him, and, and, and live with him. And so my challenge for us today, or my takeaway is a challenge, all right? Um, we are actually more like the, the Israelites than we know. Um, do you know what life down here is? It is a wilderness wandering. Um, because of sin, death, darkness, uh, because of the temporary nature of this life, our journey down here on this earth, in a sense, it is a very real spiritual wilderness wandering. Has anyone noticed that God is at work in your life? Um, I, th this blew me away. When I invited Jesus Christ into my life at like the age of 12, 10, 12 years old, God wasn't done with me. You know, it wasn't like, here I am, wow, perfect. You know, what? God is at work in Steve Keller's life, trust me. Have y'all noticed that as, as Cornerstone Church? Any church you've ever been a part of, God is always at work in us as, as a people. And the bottom line is there are things that we all need to be delivered from and to. Um, man, God has set me free from all kind of things in my earlier life. There are still things that God is setting me free from. I would say the same thing is very true in the church. And here's the thing about God. He takes his sweet time doing it, you know? Now, when we say, oh, you're taking your sweet time, that's a statement of impatience. But here with God, when God is at work in our lives, it really is sweet. It's, it's a good thing God is doing. And so my challenge to us today, and this might be hard to hear, um, when it comes to God's work in your life, when it comes to God's work in the life of this church, don't despise the journey. It's so easy to despise the journey. Don't despise it. And I know that's a big ask because, in, you know, just in my life alone, but I know so many of you, we've talked, we've prayed together. In, in our lives, you know, there's disappointment in life. There's heartache, there's, there's tragedy, you know? I mean, gosh, there are all those other people out there, you know I mean? how they act and interact and treat us, and then there's ourselves. You know, there's our own flesh and our hang-ups, and, you know, there's inconvenience, there are dashed expectations. But brothers and sisters, God is always up to immeasurably more than we could think or imagine. God is up to so... His, his end goal for you is better than your end goal for yourself. And hey, I can imagine some good end goals. You know, come on, y'all can't, right? Can't, like if everything was perfect, God's end goal for you is even better than that. That's who he is. That's what it means. God is good. God is love. Uh, this is the God. This is the God we worship. This is the God that sent Jesus Christ to us. And so I want to challenge all of us today to both accept and embrace God's work in our life. Embrace the journey and when God uses hard times or a very long time to grow us up and draw us to himself, 
understand that all of, all of God's work in our life is to give us a new theme song. You want to hear it? Oh, okay, good. I don't have a tune for it, but you may have heard it before. The theme song God wants to give us in our lives, the Lord is my strength, my defense, my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. Who is like you, Lord, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. In your unfailing love, lead me and guide me. For that to be the song of your heart, that is worth the journey in the wilderness. That's worth a little time down here. That's worth running into yourselves and having to be humbled and reminded of who God is. That's worth everything God is doing. He is good. So y'all ready to journey next week? As Morgan walks us into the, further into the wilderness, wherever you are, Morgan. So having said that, let me pray, and then we're going to shift to communion. God, you are good. Lord, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. Father, we thank you for your love. God, we thank you for your ways. And they, they are not our ways. We just say that again, meaning that we don't understand them, Lord but we don't have to understand. We can trust you and believe and watch and wonder as you create a people for yourself, Lord, as you redeem a church from the ashes. God, as you rescue people, Lord, as, as you make all things beautiful in your time. Thank you. In Jesus' name, we bless you. Amen.